This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Blessings of Living a Balanced Life. In the first half, Gary K. Palmer shares his address, The Spokes of a Balanced Life. Then in the second half, Ronald Bruff speaks on balance in life. I grew up in a small community of South Ogden, Utah. And as boys, my older brother and I lived on our bicycles. We rode our bikes everywhere. With the aid of clothespins, we would attach cards on the bicycle frame next to the spokes so that the snapping sound of the cards would imitate the rumbling sound of a motorcycle engine. <laughs> At least that was our intention. The more cards, the better. They wouldn't last long, and soon we'd have to replace them with newer cards. Other than creating an annoying sound for our neighbors, there was one other problem this practice seemed to cause. Some of the spokes began to loosen. Of course, my older brother, being 18 months smarter than I, thought he knew exactly what to do. Tighten them up! With the help of a special tool, we engaged, we eagerly tightened all the spokes, even the spokes that didn't need tightening. We gave them all an extra tug or two just to be sure they wouldn't loosen again. Soon we began our first test run on our newly tightened rims and wheels. To our surprise, the tires were wobbly and crooked. What we didn't know is that all the spokes needed to be perfectly balanced in tightness to keep the rim and tire straight so it wouldn't rub against the bicycle frame. Could it be that sometimes our lives are similar to this? Do we have a few loose spokes? Let's review some of our spokes today and see how we are doing for a smooth and balanced ride through life. Spoke number one, include laughter each day. I have learned that the ability to laugh at everyday family calamities helps keep life in perspective. If we will learn to laugh and play more with our family and friends and life in general, not only will we feel better, but so will they. As Brigham Young put it, I will take the liberty of suggesting to my brethren who address this congregation that our sermons should be short, and if they are not filled with life and spirit, let them be shorter. <laughs> Sister Hinckley would say concerning counsel of laughing your way through life, well, you either have to laugh or cry. I prefer to laugh. Crying gives me a headache. <laughs> Humor used with sensitivity can unite spouses. While I was serving as a bishop of a singles ward, an engaged couple asked me if they could have their wedding reception at our house. I quickly replied, of course you can. I forgot to tell my wife. <laughs> when she received their wedding invitation a few days before the big event, She happened to notice the address of the wedding reception. 
When I got home from work, she asked me if I'd forgotten to tell her something important. (laughs) After considerable thought, I said, No, not that I can think of. Are we having a wedding reception at our house, she asked. From the expression on her face, I could tell I was in trouble. (laughs) Oh, you mean that reception, I replied. This is where you hope your wife has a good sense of humor. (laughs) I quickly helped her prepare the home for the wedding reception. Under her able direction, of course. Most family calamities, given enough time, provide humor and laughter. Like the time I took my misbehaving two-year-old son, Tyler, home from sacrament meeting. We live right next door to the church. After turning on cartoons for my son, I fell asleep. And I didn't wake up when my five-year-old showed up to take Tyler back to primary. Trouble was, Tyler had stripped down to moon boots and training pants. And he picked up his pop-gun rifle on the way out the door. Sacrament meeting wasn't quite out. And the bishop was pouring out his soul to the congregation. It was whisper quiet when Tyler, wearing moon boots and training pants, marched up the aisle, took aim, and shot the bishop. It woke up the congregation. Of course, it wasn't funny then. Time helps humor emerge gradually. The trick is finding the humor in the event now. So perhaps a laugh a day does keep the doctor away. As the scriptures say, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. So does this mean we go around laughing all the time? Of course not. But we certainly could laugh a lot more than we do. Spoke number two, prayer. Be thou humble, and the Lord thy God shall lead thee by the hand and give thee answers to thy prayers. When I turned 12 years old, I went on my first overnight camp out with the scouts. With eager hands, I packed my hand-me-down camping gear and headed to the mountains with the troop. I ended up sleeping in a large tent with several other boys, including my older brother. Being the newest and youngest scout, I felt somewhat intimidated by it all. It was nice to have my older brother with me. He was big and strong and older than most of the other scouts. As we all prepared for bed, I quietly climbed out of my sleeping bag and knelt down to say my nightly prayer. As I was praying, I could hear some of the other boys laughing at what I was doing. I was embarrassed, and I stopped. My older brother came to my rescue. Responding to the teasing boys, he said in a loud voice, If my little brother wants to pray, he's going to pray. Anybody object? (laughs) Not a word was said, and I went back to my prayer. I've often thought of this experience. 
And I'm thankful for my brother who taught me not to be ashamed to pray, regardless of where we are. President Faust has said, Each of us has problems that we cannot solve and weaknesses that we cannot conquer without reaching out through prayer to a higher source of strength. That source is the God of heaven to whom we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Prayer is our direct communication with our Heavenly Father. We do need to be on the right frequency, however, and be precisely tuned in to communicate. It reminds me of trying to listen to a BYU basketball game on KSL while driving home from Idaho. The ball game would fade in and out as I meandered through the mountains on my journey home. And so it is with prayer. One cannot be tuned into the right frequency while engaged in inappropriate behavior. We may, from time to time, need to adjust our spiritual frequency dial to have perfect clarity with our Heavenly Father. While serving as a missionary in the Western Canadian Mission Home, our mission president asked one of the elders to bless the food we were about to partake of. The elder blessed the food and everything else he could think of. After the lengthy prayer ended, the mission president tactfully counseled us about public prayers. He said that when we are asked to pray, we should keep the prayer focused on the purpose of the prayer. If you are asked to bless the food, then bless the food, and that's it. Bruce R. McConkie said concerning meeting prayers, It is not necessary to offer very long and tedious prayers, either at opening or closing. It is not only not pleasing to the Lord for us to use excess of words, but also it's not pleasing to the Latter-day Saints. <laughs> Two minutes will open any kind of meeting, and a half minute will close it. Spoke number three, making the best of each day, good or bad. As I was growing up, my family would occasionally go to an amusement theme park located a few miles from Ogden. In those days, you would purchase a special pass containing a certain number of tickets for different rides in the park. One of the tickets was for entrance into what they called the Fun House. We always saved the Fun House for last, because once we got in, we could stay there for as long as we wanted. Inside this attraction were two very large moving barrels. They were connected together each one turning in the opposite direction. The idea was to see if you could keep your balance and walk upright through these two barrels without falling down. When I tried to walk through these barrels, I immediately fell down. I tried to stand up, but fell down again. Being somewhat determined, I tried a third time, only to fall again. Most of the other people had mastered the challenge and either stepped on me or maneuvered around me and continued through the barrels. At this point, somewhat embarrassed and slightly in pain, I decided to quit and just sit down and stay at the bottom. Well, the barrels didn't care what I decided to do. They just kept turning 
I found myself being tossed and tumbled like I was inside a giant clothes dryer. It didn't take long to realize that giving up was much worse than trying. I gathered myself together as best I could and with some struggle began to crawl on my hands and knees just to stop from tumbling and to keep my balance. Soon I was able to go from crawling to standing up in short spurts. Finally, I could stand up and walk in perfect rhythm with the turning barrel. I began to slowly make my way through the first barrel, but soon encountered the second barrel going the opposite direction. This required me to quickly switch directions while maintaining my balance. After several miscues, I finally made it through the barrels. I tell this story because it reminds me of life sometimes. Have you ever felt your life moving in opposite directions? Tumbling, falling, standing up, falling again, and wanting to give up. But you don't want to give up. You never want to give up. As Paul put it, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us, meaning the love of Christ. We know that we don't have control over all the situations that come into our lives each day. But then again, that's not so much about what comes into our lives as it is how we respond to it. For example, when I think of the story of Joseph, who was sold into Egypt, it is easy to see that Joseph made the best of each situation he encountered. I believe he was a good son. He was obedient and respectful to his parents, but sadly, his brothers were jealous of him and eventually sold him as a slave. It's kind of hard to imagine, really, that brothers would do that. Of course, we know the story doesn't end there, does it? He was the best slave. He was the best prisoner. He was the best servant. He was the best steward over Potiphar's household. And eventually, he became the best ruler in Egypt. And in the end, he forgave his brothers and he saved his family. He made the best out of each situation that came his way, good or bad. The Apostle Paul said, We know that all things work together for them that love God. If God be for us, who can be against us? Things will work out may well be President Hinckley's most repeated assurance to family, friends, and associates. Keep trying, he will say. Be believing. Be happy. Don't get discouraged. Things will work out. Spoke number four, serving others. Spencer W. Kimball said, When we are engaged in the service of our fellow man, not only do our deeds assist them, but we put our own problems in a fresher perspective. How do we serve? One of the best ways to serve is in our local ward. We should be active in our ward. 
I don't mean a little active. I mean very active, very involved. This is the one area in which we can probably serve the most. We don't necessarily have to have a formal calling. There are many ways to serve without a calling. The Lord has said, It is not meet that I should command in all things. For he that is compelled in all things, the same is a slothful and not a wise servant. When sign-up sheets are passed around in priesthood and relief society, do we sign up? Or do we sign up when it fits our schedule? Is that really how to serve? Are we good home teachers, good visiting teachers? Could it be that we are some of the people who pass by the wounded man on the road to Jericho in the parable of the Good Samaritan? I hope not. I hope we are the Good Samaritan. As the Savior told the lawyer, Which now of these was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And the lawyer said, He that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus replied, Go and do thou likewise. While serving as a bishop of a BYU singles ward, I knew one young man in the ward who supported everything we sponsored. He came to every family home evening, every activity, every dance, every service project, anything the ward sponsored, he was there. The reason I bring this up is because he didn't actually need the activities for himself. He had a serious girlfriend in another ward and was soon to be engaged, but still he came. I asked him why he came to all the ward's social functions. He humbly replied, I feel like if I attend, perhaps I can contribute to the success of the event. Maybe I can help someone feel welcome. Maybe I can add to the fun. I just think it's another great opportunity to serve. In other words, he didn't attend to see what was in it for him, but rather what he could give to contribute to others. When my older brother and I were growing up, my dad always dragged us to the welfare farm. I say drag because we didn't want to go, but dad always took us anyway. I remember that usually the work was hard and unpleasant, like pulling weeds in the hot sun. Once I recall my father telling us that all these people working out here are serving people they don't even know. Take a good look and see who is here. These members are the stalwarts of our ward. They don't have to be here. There's no glory, no fanfare, no recognition here. Just quiet, behind-the-scenes service. As a newly married student at BYU, I was called to serve in a BYU ward bishopric. I tried to serve the bishop as best I could, but my wife and I loved to travel to visit with our families on the weekends as much as possible. This would mean getting excused from my church responsibilities. After a few months serving this way, I noticed that while the bishop did politely excuse me, He was disappointed that I would be away again. I asked him if it was all right that we visit our families so often. His reply surprised me. 
I would like to visit my family as well. But my calling is to serve here. I got the message. I was serving when it didn't interfere with my plans. When it was convenient. I learned from this good bishop what it really meant to actually serve the Lord. I thought I knew how to serve before this experience. But I was wrong. Visiting my family was certainly important. But I learned I could do both. With some planning, I found time to visit my family after I had completed my calling. There will always be some things you have to give up to do justice to a calling, whether it's the bishopric or home teaching. I've decided that we probably have enough time to do all the Lord expects us to do, including visiting our families. But we probably don't have enough time to do all the things we would like to do. As King Benjamin says, And behold, I tell you these things, that ye may learn wisdom, that ye may learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. Spoke number five. Don't be distracted by worldly things. It's easy to get caught up in worldly things. The world is always selling something. So enticing, so inviting. We're always wanting things, and then more things. Everywhere we go, we are told, Go ahead! You deserve it! Not that this is all bad, but it can be if this becomes the dominant course of your life. The Apostle Paul counseled, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. My parents always told me that the best things in life were free. Now I think I know what they meant. Family, friends, grandchildren, church, smiles, sunset, mountains, trees, birds, flowers, and even my dog. Of course, some of these things aren't actually free, but they are eternal. The Savior said that no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Some people think that you can have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Is this really possible? And why would you do this anyway? I believe this is why the Lord told Adam to stop what he was doing on the seventh day and worship him. A reminder of why we are here in the first place. It's a weekly course correction to see if we are on track. I'm sure that after Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden, life was filled with hard work just to survive. But even so, he stopped, paused, and worshipped God on the seventh day. Pretty good advice for all of us. Nephi told us that in our day, good would be called evil, and evil would be called good. Does that sound like the world to you? Have you ever noticed how often religion and spirituality are portrayed as 
confining, narrow-minded, weak. Be careful about what you accumulate in this life. Paul warns, We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. We need to remember that all we take with us is how we have served God. Spoke number six. Be an example. Years ago, a friend of mine told me an incredible story about his father's first exposure to the Church. His father served in the Navy during World War II. While serving on a battleship, he became acquainted with two Mormon boys from Idaho. They were nice boys, and everyone seemed to like them. But they were different. When the ship would come into port, many of the sailors would go into town to party and drink, but not these two. They seemed to find their own fun and avoid the crowd. When the war ended, my friend's father married, settled in Southern California, and was the father of two young children. One Sunday morning, while working on his roof, his wife shouted up to him, saying something like this, Don't you think it's about time we started taking our children to church? Good idea, he replied. Yes, but what church, she replied. Take them to the Mormon church, she said. Two of the nicest sailors I ever met were Mormons. But where's the Mormon church, she said. Look it up in the phone book, he answered. And so she did. To her surprise, she found the nearest Mormon church not far from their home. She dressed her two small children in their nicest clothes and took them to the nearest LDS church. They were welcomed with open arms. The ward members took the children directly to junior Sunday school. The children had a great time and asked to go back week after week. Soon the parents were attending also. They were all baptized into the church. But the story doesn't end there. The parents were so excited about this new church they had found for their family, they told some of their best neighbor friends. Soon other families in the neighborhood were going to the same Mormon ward. From this small beginning, three generations later, there are hundreds, perhaps thousands of people in the Church today. Why? Because two Mormon boys from Idaho lived their religion. One of the amazing parts of this story is that these two boys from Idaho have no idea the impact they had on one person in the Navy. Imagine their joy in the next life when they meet all these Latter-day Saints. By small and simple things, are great things brought to pass. When a missionary returns home, sometimes we hear questions like, Have you made the adjustment to normal life? Or, Have you returned to the earth yet? Why in the world would we suggest that? Shouldn't we be trying to be more like them? Wouldn't it be better if all of us acted like recently returned missionaries? Isn't that what a Latter-day Saint should be? As President McKay has said many times, 
Whate'er thou art, act well thy part. And the last spoke, a foundation of Christ. It's not really a spoke, is it? It's more like the hub, and all the spokes are connected to it. As a teenager, I worked for my brother-in-law in house construction. It was always interesting to me to watch the excavation crew with their big bulldozer come out and dig a huge hole for the house. After the bulldozer was finished, we'd all climb down into the large hole and begin digging the footings upon which the foundation would rest. It was hard to imagine that this hole would soon become a beautiful new home. But this is where it all begins. Without the foundation, there is no home, at least not a home that would make it through the changing seasons of our climate. This is what makes the home strong, firm, and almost immovable. This must have been what Helaman meant when he counseled his sons to remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God that you must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you. So, yes, it's probably a good idea to check your spokes of life periodically, just as we did as boys on our bicycles. Be careful, though. Keep them perfectly tight and balanced for a smoother ride through life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Blessings of Living a Balanced Life. We've just heard from Gary K. Palmer. After the break, we'll return with Ronald Bruff for Balance in Life. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Blessings of Living a Balanced Life. Next is Ronald Bruff, a professor of music at Brigham Young University at the time of this address, titled Balance in Life. As my eldest son Ryan was a little more than halfway through his studies on this campus, He and I started what was to become a family tradition of attending Tuesday devotionals and forums together each week. Afterwards, I would treat him to lunch so that we could discuss what we had learned, and this gave me an opportunity to observe how things were going in his life. As this tradition has continued with each of our children, our youngest child, Robin, asked me a question as we exited the Marriott Center last fall semester. Dad, when are you going to speak in devotional? My reply was simple and to the point. I'll likely never be asked because of all the other qualified people they have to choose from. This experience reminded me of a comment I made to my wife, Raylene, soon after we were married and were living in Texas, that we would likely never live near her parents, who lived here in Utah County, based upon my choice to be a musician. The likelihood of living anywhere in the Intermountain West seemed fairly remote. An unexpected phone call came while I was teaching in Indiana. The invitation came to join the faculty on this campus. 
and has proven to be a wonderful blessing for our family, as well as an opportunity for my own personal growth and service. The lesson learned? Never say never. As a percussionist, I play a number of different instruments in a myriad of musical styles. I have colleagues that specialize on certain instruments, but my motto has always been, if you can shake, scrape, or hit it, I play it. <laughs> Performing on marimba, vibraphone, and cortales with the Utah Symphony or on timpani with a Ballet West production, drum set on a jazz gig, or playing African hand drums in a recording session for a Tahitian Noni infomercial allow me the variety I thrive on. There is seldom, if ever, a time when I feel like I'm in a rut. With that variety comes the challenge of finding time to know what instrument to practice and in what musical style. Keeping balance in my percussion playing life has always been a challenge. As a young new faculty member here, I was often traveling up to Salt Lake City to rehearse or perform with a variety of groups. Frequently, I would rush home after a busy day on campus only to ask Raylene to pack me a sandwich while I changed clothes or loaded some percussion equipment into my truck. My son Ryan, who was then only 10 years old, observed the way my life was going and waited for the perfect opportunity to teach his dad a very important lesson. That moment came one day when I asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up. He responded, I don't exactly know what career I want but I know what I don't want to be—a musician. <laughs> I was stunned. Why? He then recounted my multiple refueling sessions, with me hurrying home only to leave again for another engagement. I reflected upon what he said and was reminded of an experience from my own childhood when I watched the Ed Sullivan Variety Show on television. Now, a variety show was as popular then as reality TV is today along with acts like the Beatles, comedians, singers, tap dancers, there was a performer who would frequently appear on this show. His act consisted of a, an array of long wooden poles upon which he would place carefully ceramic plates, and with a deft hand he would spin each plate while some silly oompa music was playing in the background. As he spun his fifth or sixth plate, inevitably plate number two or three would start to wobble and he would have to hurry back to increase the spin before it crashed to the floor. It was a riveting display of skill, timing, and speed, with viewers across the nation eager to see if he could spin all of the plates on every wobbling dowel. As you are turning in projects, papers, and preparing for finals, perhaps you feel like you are trying to keep too many plates spinning. Our challenge is often, how many plates should I try to spin? and for how long. In 1987, Elder Russell M. Ballard was recovering from a serious illness and felt prompted to speak in April General Conference on the topic, Keeping Life's Demands in Balance. In that address, he offered eight suggestions. One, think about your life and set your priorities. Two, set short-term goals that you can reach. Three, Budget wisely and prepare for financial challenges. Four, stay close to your spouse, children, family, and friends. Study the scriptures. Find time for sufficient rest, relaxation, and exercise. Hold weekly family home evening. Pray as individuals and as families. 
If we view each of these suggestions as an essential pole upon which we need to spin a plate, our ability to deal with the challenges of life will improve. Think about your life and set your priorities. As a young freshman on this campus, I knew that I wanted to do something with music. Throughout my childhood, my parents arranged for private music lessons, purchased instruments, and provided me with the opportunity to attend schools and summer camps that gave me wonderful musical experiences. When I announced to them sometime during my senior year in high school that I wanted to pursue music for a career, they were suddenly less than enthusiastic. Both of my parents were trained musicians, although my father worked as a corporate executive professionally. They had even met each other through music, he being a violinist and she being his accompanist on piano. By expressing their non-support in my choice to make music my career, I was even more determined to succeed. I spent many hours thinking deeply about what I wanted to accomplish in my life. Choosing a major was never a problem for me, but deciding on my career path was something that took years of reflection and refinement. Making slight alterations to basic guiding principles is not a problem. The refining process of one's career choice is a method that allows you to tweak your goals through your efforts and hard work. Whether or not you feel your priorities are already set or are still in process, our next plate that must be spinning on a regular basis is the habit of setting short-term goals. Without goals, it will be difficult for those priorities to become a reality, and we can begin the process of living life in what I call coasting mode. Time passes each of us by whether we are accomplishing much with that time or not. Life on this earth is a precious gift. The process of setting, achieving, and reviewing our goals is a lifelong process. By reviewing what we have or have not accomplished helps us to reevaluate whether the goal we set was realistic or helpful. Having the courage to make changes and then pursue what we desire with the right attitude can make a big difference in our ability to succeed. As you travel home at the conclusion of finals, you might consider taking the time to evaluate your experiences this semester. What went well? What would you do differently? You could even set new goals to make next semester or the next important step in your life more rewarding. The Church teaches us the importance of this process in primary as our preteens fulfill the requirements in the Faith in God booklet. The same is true of our young men and young women's programs. Meeting with a member of your bishopric to review your accomplishments in your personal progress or duty to God booklet were concepts and principles that you can continue to utilize in your adult life. How grateful I am for parents, teachers, mentors, friends, and my patriarchal blessing. Each of these were valuable resources for me in making crucial choices in my life. Another important plate to spin well has to do with how we deal with our finances. As a newly married couple, I assumed the role of chief financial officer in our family. After three months, my patient wife sat me down and helped me to see that the direction I was taking us wasn't faring too well. You see, my wife had a degree in personal finance, <laughs> and my creative musical concepts of how to spend, save, and invest simply weren't working. 
largely because the last two elements of saving and investing were missing from my financial formula. <laughs> Fortunately, I was willing to listen and learn. Each Sunday evening, we would sit at the kitchen table to view financial ledger sheets that she had prepared. When I started doing freelance work while going to school full-time, our income fluctuated from month to month. She was always able to demonstrate on those ledger sheets how the money I had projected we would earn the next month was already spent. Those were very depressing meetings for me. I thought as if I was working hard for little or no gain. With time, I was able to learn how to handle my spending habits and made it a point to always pay the Lord as well as myself while also paying our bills. Our relationships with those we love is an essential plate that needs our attention. As our children were growing up, Raylene and I realized that my time at home was too rare an occasion. Since she grew up on a dairy farm, we also felt that working side by side with our children was an important part of their education and training. Eventually, the idea was born to start a family band. The University Steel Band that I had formed years ago had met with a great deal of success. There seemed to be a never-ending supply of requests for off-campus performances, and often these came during the summer months when students were home and away from campus. We came up with the idea of a family steel band, knowing that we would receive engagements because of the interest demonstrated by the university group. Instruments were purchased, and we began to rehearse. One of our earliest performances was to play poolside at a country club. It was a three-hour job, and we could only play ten tunes. I knew we weren't ready to accept such a long engagement, but took the job anyway because I felt that my children weren't putting enough effort into their personal practice or at our family rehearsals. By playing this job, they would learn just how much more they needed to prepare. The appointed evening arrived. We set up our instruments and tried to look our professional best. We played all ten of our tunes and took a break. That took up the first hour, and we hadn't had any real musical crisis. We played them again, this time in a different order, and took another break. We were into our final hour of the job, and I called a certain tune entitled Yellowbird, a calypso that Harry Belafonte had made famous many, many years ago. I was just about to count off the tune when one of the guests at the party came up to me and asked, You're not going to play Yellowbird again, are you? No, sir, I replied and quickly called another tune and hoped that he was well on the other side of the pool before we even thought of playing Yellowbird again. Needless to say, we learned a great deal from that experience and have since learned from many other opportunities, performing at conventions, arts festivals, and even with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and the Conference Center. The band went through several transformations as children grew into and out of the band. Ryan now works as a scientist in Salt Lake City. Reagan performs with the Army Blues Jazz Band in Washington, D.C., and our son Roger is serving a mission in South Korea. To keep the family band going, we hired some of my colleagues and musical heroes. These are great musicians, and it was a thrill to have them play in our band. At the end of one of our performances, my wife looked at me and said, This isn't fun anymore. It feels like work. I knew what she meant. Although these newcomers to our band were great musicians, the band had become something more than an ensemble. Our relationship as a family was a part of what made the music happen. We decided that evening to disband the family band. 
This experience reminds me of an important scripture found in Ecclesiastes. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Our family band served many purposes in helping our children save for their missions, learning how to work together, developing their self-esteem, and having fun while providing a service to others. But this is a plate I no longer spin in my life, and I can channel those energies elsewhere. Regular study of the scriptures as a family and as individuals has always been a part of our family culture. When our two youngest children, Roger and Robin, were still preschool age, we each took a turn reading a verse. It was painful to listen to these two read an entire verse of scripture. I would cringe when they had a longer verse to read, but we kept at it. They eventually became great readers, and we learned to better understand the scriptures together. When Robin was a senior in high school and the only one left at home, she came to me and said, Dad, why do we need to read the scriptures together as a family? You know I love the scriptures, and according to Elder Eyring, that is the purpose of family scripture study. I went and found the enzyme, read the article, and sure enough, Elder Eyring said, and I quote, It's important to read the scriptures together in a way that lets your children know you include them because you love them. However, reading together may break down during the teenage years. Teens may say, I'd rather read on my own. My encouragement to families in that situation is to see that as victory, not defeat. Your child may be saying, I'm getting something when I'm alone that I don't get when we're all here together. Take that as a wonderful sign that scripture study is beginning to take hold in your teen's heart. The main purpose is to fall in love with the scriptures and feast upon them, whether we are alone or together." End of quote. Wow, I had to really alter my thinking. Robin did love the scriptures and read them every night before retiring to bed. And yet I didn't want to give up that experience because it brought a great spirit into our home. What could we do differently as a family to make our time together more effective for her as well as for us? We counseled together and learned that she wanted to help with memorizing her scripture mastery scriptures that year in seminary. She also wanted to read the Preach My Gospel manual that was a new publication in the Church. We decided to do both. She continued reading scriptures her way in her personal study, and we all learned the scripture mastery scriptures and studied the Preach My Gospel manual together. It was a wonderful experience for all three of us, even though I am a terrible memorizer. Since my career has also been my favorite hobby, I usually have difficulty taking time off from music-making to exercise, relax, and simply recreate. Often our first family vacations consisted of brief camping trips or visits with family. Too many times I considered tours with musical groups as a vacation. It took years for my family to convince me that we needed to just get away and have time together without work-related distractions. It has been a conscious effort for me now to plan a family vacation where work is not involved. The memories made and the experience learned have become priceless. I shudder to think of the opportunities missed when I was so busy spinning unnecessary music-making plates in lieu of relaxing time with my wife and children. Another family activity in which we were fairly consistent with was weekly family home evenings. Our Church leaders have taught us over and over again the importance of this weekly event 
and the ways that it can strengthen us and help us both individually and collectively. I'm very grateful for a wife who took every opportunity to teach principles to our children. She didn't wait for Monday night to teach them. When a question was asked, it was a teaching opportunity. When there was a disagreement, it was a teaching opportunity. My father was the first to point this out to me. When he was visiting our home, he took me aside and asked if I had noticed how Raylene had just instructed one of our children. I am sure he asked that question knowing full well that I wasn't even remotely aware of what she had just done. Growing a garden was an important part of our children's upbringing. We always included the children in planting, weeding, and harvesting. One lesson that I learned from my wife had to do with weeding the garden early one Saturday morning. The night before, we had had a rehearsal with our family band and were working on a new musical number. Raylene had had some difficulty in making her part fit with the rest of the band. She was a bit anxious and would rush some of the rhythmical figures, and it just didn't groove. We stopped to talk about the problem. Many of the children offered their suggestions to help her, but each time we played that part of the tune, she continued to rush. I didn't realize how frustrating this was for her until I asked her a simple question while pulling weeds the next morning in the garden. Is this a plant or a weed? I asked, looking at an array of green sprouts. She stared at me wide-eyed and replied, You can't tell, can you? My response was, Well, I wouldn't have asked if I knew which of these to pull and which to leave planted. And then came the teaching moment. Now you know how I felt last night in rehearsal. Looking down at the ground, I had no idea which of those little green things to leave in the soil. What a great way to help me understand how she must have felt the night before, doing her best to play her notes, but not knowing what to do differently to make it groove. Elder Ballard's final suggestion for us to keep our balance in this world and in the eternal scheme of things is prayer. As a bishop, when I interview youth, I am amazed at how many young people are faithful at saying their personal prayers at night, and yet how seldom they pray in the morning. When I ask why they choose not to pray in the morning, the excuses vary, but most center on the fact that they get up too late and simply don't have the time. My next question to them is, when you sin and make mistakes, isn't it more frequently from the time you wake up until you retire at night? Or do those things occur more often from the time you fall asleep until you get up in the morning? They are pretty quick at getting my point. We need our prayers just as much, if not more, at the start of our day. I can recall periods of my life where I was less consistent with morning personal prayers compared to evening prayers. Inevitably, I was asking Heavenly Father for forgiveness in those evening prayers for my many mistakes and shortcomings. When I took the time to gather my thoughts, plan my day, and pray for His help and guidance in the morning, my evening prayers were frequently filled with thanksgiving for the good things that had transpired. Family prayer is a great way to teach principles and feel the love for those with whom we live. There is nothing sweeter than for me to hear my companion pray in my behalf. Hopefully she has similar feelings when I pray for her in our family prayers. Our good neighbor, Ladon Jacob, often makes the statement that leaving the house without family prayer is like leaving the house naked. 
Prayer is a tool to help us commune with our Father in Heaven. It is also the vehicle that He can use to reveal His will to us. President Spencer W. Kimball's words are direct but worth our personal reflection. Quote, Do you get answers to your prayers? If not, perhaps you did not pay the price. Do you offer a few trite words and worn-out phrases, or do you talk intimately to the Lord? Do you pray occasionally when you should be praying regularly, often, constantly? Do you offer pennies to pay heavy debts when you should give dollars to erase that obligation? When you pray, do you just speak or do you also listen? Your Savior said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. The Lord stands knocking. He never retreats. But he will never force himself upon us. If we ever move apart, it is we who move and not the Lord. And should we ever fail to get an answer to our prayers, we must look into our lives for a reason. In many of the examples shared today, you may have noticed that frequently I was the one making the adjustments. It wasn't enjoyable to admit my lack of financial prowess and to attend those budget meetings with my wife, nor was it always easy or fun trying to make music with my family in our first few attempts to rehearse and perform. The gentle rebuke by my son regarding his career preference, caving in to my daughter's desire to memorize scripture, mastery scriptures, and pulling weeds in the garden were perhaps uncomfortable situations at first glance, but proved to be great blessings in my life, not spineless acts of trying to please. These experiences were shared not to boast, brag, or indict, but because all of us need to make changes. We can make changes for the better. We fought for that right in the preexistence. The ability to make choices is what allows us to come unto Christ, as Moroni so eloquently stated at the conclusion of the Book of Mormon. There are times when we must push forward and not give in, but there are also times when we need to reconsider and alter our direction or approach. This quote by Elder Neil A. Maxwell has been very helpful to me. I am going to preach a hard doctrine to you now. The submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. It is a hard doctrine, but it is true. The many other things we give to God, however nice that may be of us, are actually things He has already given us, and He has loaned them to us. But when we begin to submit ourselves by letting our wills be swallowed up in God's will, then we are really giving something to Him. And that hard doctrine lies at the center of discipleship. There is a part of us that is ultimately sovereign, the mind and heart, where we really do decide which way to go and what to do. And when we submit to His will, then we have really given Him the one final thing He asks of us, and the other things are not very important. It is the only possession we have that we can give and there is no lessening of our agency as a result. Instead, what we see is a flowering of our talents and more and more surges of joy. Whether we choose to use all of eight suggestions offered by Elder Ballard or follow the advice of any number of experts in the field of life balance, 
the important thing to remember is that those of us with the gift of the Holy Ghost need to utilize that gift. Having the gift of the Holy Ghost bestowed upon us is one thing. Having the influence of the Holy Ghost in our lives is another. By submitting our personal will to that of our Father in Heaven allows us to receive much-needed inspiration and revelation. We don't have to be an apostle, a Relief Society president, or an Elders Quorum president to have that influence in our lives. Elder Hales reinforced this concept as he spoke to us in our last General Conference. As faithful children, youth, parents, teachers, and leaders, we may receive personal revelation more frequently than we realize. The more we receive and acknowledge personal revelation, the more our testimonies grow. As a bishop, my testimony grew each time I received revelation to extend callings to ward members. That testimony has been strengthened each time I witness general authorities and officers, Area 70s, and stake presidents called or given new assignments. More importantly, I am strengthened by the personal revelations I receive in my role as a son of God, a husband, and a father. I am so thankful for the guidance and direction of the spirit of our home as we seek for direction in family matters. Each of us has the ability to receive the direction that we need to achieve a balanced life. My hope and prayer is that each of us will do what we need to do to have the influence of our Father in Heaven in our lives. As we do our part, I testify that He will do His part to bring us eternal life and joy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Blessings of Living a Balanced Life, with thoughts from Gary K. Palmer and Ronald Bruff. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.